0: Love, Talk Radio. Hi there. Welcome to Teach Me To Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize. Oh, sorry about that. Somebody's shaping in, I think. Uh, will just have to wait. I am... I think I was doing my name, Laura Mize, Pediatric Speech-Language Pathologist from com, and I'm so happy that you joined me for this week's show. Before we get going with our topic, let me tell you about a couple of things that are new at com. If you've not been there in a week or two or haven't heard the show lately, let me give you a couple of reminders about some things I have going on this summer First of all, I have a new post that's right there on the homepage at teachmetotalk.com that says, "Have a question? I'm here to help." And that's a place for parents and for therapists to post a question that you might have that uh you'd like to get my feedback on. And it's been super popular. I've loved hearing the kinds of questions that come in. And again, let me just talk about why I'm doing that publicly again. I stopped that for a while, but I've gone back to that because I get hordes of emails every day from parents. And so many times the questions are so similar (laughs) that when I do get to respond, I feel like I'm typing the same thing. And again, that's not to take away from the uniqueness or individuality of any child or situation, but a lot of the questions that we tend to ask as parents of children who are not communicating yet uh, all kind of revolve around some central themes. And so that's why I did the post so other parents can benefit from the information. Sometimes the parent will say to me, I didn't even know what to call that, that my child was doing. Or I didn't realize that that was part of a speech language delay. I thought that was just part of his personality until I read this mom's comment. So there's so much that you can gain from reading other people's questions and the responses or their concerns. And so that that's why uh, we've reposted that or start launched that again. Secondly, this summer, I'm doing some Skype consults, and I've just had a blast with the families that I've gotten to meet over the last couple of weeks uh, since we started this again, too. It's been so fun to get to hear your stories and answer those really personal questions. And again, sometimes things are too raw (laughs) to put out there uh, even anonymously on the internet you just don't feel like you want to divulge your personal information or you need a second opinion or you just need a sounding board and would like or this is what's happened in the past couple of weeks too I've had some families so moms and dads participate and I've had also a parent who's had her speech pathologist there So we could all kind of brainstorm together with what might be a new direction to take a child's treatment. So just putting that out there, letting you know that that's available and you can get information about the Skype consults on com's homepage. So please check that out if you're interested. Okay, tonight's topic is based on a post that I did last week Called First Sessions Toy List for Toddlers in Speech Therapy. And I've gotten so much feedback from therapists and parents who've said that was a good idea or I like this or could you give me some more information about this? So I'm doing the show as a little add on to that post. So if you've not seen that post, Go back and take a look at it, and let me just say too tonight's show and I forgot to say the number it's number two sixty three and it this is June eleventh two thousand and fifteen. I know these shows kind of live on forever, so if you're listening in you know way beyond two thousand and fifteen, this is what we were talking about now, and this is what was going on at this little moment in time and let me just say too tonight's show we're going to kind of go pretty fast, so you may want to go back and take a look at the post so that you can get, um, if you miss something, and if you want to go back and again kind of take a look at the toys and look at the links, because I have everything right there listed for you, be sure that you're doing that. And we're going to move fast, because again, I think the last few weeks that I've done shows, they've been parents calling in and asking questions which is fabulous for other parents and again you learn so much when you hear someone else's story you feel that sense of camaraderie and that you're not in this alone but i think sometimes therapists get a little frustrated because they may not feel like they're hearing anything new well tonight's show i'm really going to tweak and do it from a therapist perspective so we're going to move a little bit faster And the purpose of tonight's show, again, is just to talk about my top ten activities that I use in those first few sessions and give you all the different ideas and all the different slants that you can use with a child who's coming to you so that you might use a particular toy one way for one child and then turn around the next session and you have a totally different focus. So it may not make as much sense to moms and you may not (laughs) – feel the relevance for your own child if I'm talking about lots of different children and lots of different goals and specific strategies. But again, I wanted to mention that because I don't want our, our therapist friends to feel left out with these shows. You know, it's kind of hard to walk that line sometime to have information that's applicable for both parents and therapists. And I try my best to do that, but tonight we're going to kind of plan it a little bit uh, and, and get that going. So, Let's get started. Now, on the post at teachmetotalk.com, when you read about, or if you go back and read this post, I do some discussions about all of our different treatment settings. I think sometimes when we talk about working with toddlers, if you are in a state and you have a contract work for an agency for the state early intervention program and you hear toddlers and in early intervention you get kind of stuck on thinking that the only folks that treat toddlers are people that are doing home visits and you kind of think that it's your way or no way or that whatever is best practice in your state is the only way that it should be and you forget that there are all these other treatment settings where people are working with toddlers. And it's so funny when I do start to kind of talk about early intervention or, or read about it, especially on social media, you'll go to a page and you'll you'll see something that talks about best practice or what the model is, but then you read what someone from another state lists and it's completely different. And we have to remember that state systems are different everywhere and we have to remember that <laughs> in some states school systems are still in charge of early intervention and folks are st- toddlers are still getting center-based services in some states and it's not always about the coaching model which is kind of the the hot topic the last few years I still have tons of folks in private practice who are seeing toddlers in their offices which is what I've done the past few years too. So I want you to kind of remember that, that this show really has a global reach and that we see, well, the audience here is made up of lots and lots and lots of beyond parents and therapists, but therapists who work in all kinds of settings. So I want to be sure that we're covering our bases in this show and we're talking about strategies and activities that are applicable across the board so that if you are doing an office visit and doing your own thing and preparing your own materials and you have your own toys, that's going to be completely different from someone who's working in a state that discourages you from taking your own things and you're really doing everything you can to ensure that your treatment sessions are a natural environment. You're coaching families, you're fitting into that model, you are Giving moms ideas for things they already have, or when they bring up, "This is what I want to do," or "This is something our family likes," that's when you slide in those strategies and and really fit into that that coaching model again, where you're not doing tons of direct intervention with the child, but you're making great recommendations for families based on what they already do and their existing routines, and you're teaching mom strategies, and you're it's that real it's it's uh, hands off in a way. Because, again, your your program has emphasized that they don't want you to do that direct one-to-one treatment model. There's some discussion about that on the post, and we're not really going to get into that tonight because I don't want anybody to feel like I'm having a preference with which model is best, What? Again, that word best practice, those words best practice, I don't want to get into all that. Your job is your job. Whatever model you're working in, that's what you have to function in. That's what you're set to do. So I hope that we're going beyond that and it's not a discussion or a fight about which, what's better, but that we're all able to kind of think about that, that there are different treatment models out there and certainly different treatment settings and then we're able to kind of still take an activity and decide how you can use it from child to child to child and still meet um, everyone's needs no matter what setting you work in. Our big thing is, and I say this all the time kind of as a little tagline on teach me to talk, and I'm not sure if I've said it on the show lately, but we can teach language anytime, anywhere, so you don't really have to think about speech therapy always being in one particular setting, or if you're a mom listening, there is no magic in the toys <laughs> that we're going that I'm talking about or that you know even that your own therapist uses that's not what's important. We can teach a kid language regardless of what activity he's engaged in. And that's the beauty of really using a model where you're not limited to one setting or a certain way that you have to do it. So let's um, really kind of think about that, too, and think about all the ways that we can expand and that we can use what a child is interested in that we can you know follow a child's lead it's so important to do that to include what a child already likes and to to start with where a kid is not to always try to come in and introduce something new or do something that's dramatically different but to take what a kid already likes and what a family already does and kind of start there. So even if we are seeing a kid in an office setting, we can still do that. And the beauty of having kind of a go-to set of toys that that include a lot of real general familiar items that we're going to talk about in this show is you can really do that. And you can always, with with having this kind of... You know, I don't know how you think about your toys or your activities or your treatment materials, but always kind of thinking about this is what I start with because – Children will be familiar with it. Hopefully they've had a little bit of exposure to activities like this. And then you can kind of build on that and decide what your winners are and what your losers are, you know, what a kid doesn't like. If a kid doesn't love something, I'm not going to do it at all those first few sessions because I want to do everything I can to really establish a strong emotional connection or a special friendship, however you like to think about that. I want that child to like me and interact with me and want to be me to be there. And if he's coming to my office to want to come in and for that to be exciting. I always say I want it to be the highlight of the week. And I feel that way no matter whether I've done home visits or an office visit or wherever. I want that family, (laughs) the mom and the child, to feel like, you know, this is exciting. This is important and not just like another kind of ho-hum thing to check off the to-do list that day. Um, So again, when we are looking at these early sessions, it's so important to determine what a child already likes to do. And again, kind of meet in there so that you have a starting point and you see what baseline is with what play activities. He's already had some I said exposure before, really I'm talking about mastery. You kind of want to see him at his best. Sometimes we think about therapy with, well, we're going to work on what he can't do. We're going to work on that goal. But really with toddlers, that shouldn't be our focus. We should start with what they can do in the beginning. And I say it all the time, meet him where he is, meet him at his current developmental level, get the things going that are just... Beginning to be consistent, you know, we start there rather than having everything be brand new. So the same thing holds true for toys. And so, again, I've told you that we're going to talk about activities that are pretty familiar. And you may have most of these things already. I bet you do. And most of the families that you see, if you're doing a home visit, they probably have lots of these resources too. Some of them are newer toys. But we'll talk about the commonalities that a toy may have with another toy that a family might already own, uh, even if they don't have the same toy that I'm talking about or the same activity. Uh, I started my list with one toy that I think every person who's been a speech language pathologist or an early interventionist for two minutes can tell you the power of bubbles bubbles are a go-to standard standby tried and true activity that we do with toddlers because they're just so much fun and bubbles really if you think about what they're teaching there bubbles teach um, cause and effect. We're gonna, I'm going to blow and then we see these bubbles. They certainly, because they disappear, that's fascinating to a toddler because the child has some level of control about the bubble, meaning that he can pop it and make it disappear. That's what makes it so darn fun. And even if parents have done bubbles a lot, even if it's kind of a thing that they do all the time, you can still probably add value as a as a therapist with talking with parents about ways that they can use bubbles and times that they can do that when they may not have thought about it before. And again, even if a kid has done bubbles all day every day, he still likes it. When you want to do that during therapy, bubbles hardly lose their novelty. Now, occasionally we will have a kid that's not so crazy about bubbles. We might have a little friend with uh, sensory processing differences that really would have an aversive reaction to getting his hands wet or for whatever reason not enjoy bubbles. But for the most part, unless the kid, again, is just sick and tired of them, it is something that you can get most kids to do with um Not a lot of effort, even on your part either, because they are so much fun. I like no spill bubbles, and I have said this in every post I've ever written about toys or... Every time I do a live event and I I write it and I say it over and over and over again, but this is so true. No spill bubble containers changed my life when they first came out in the late 90s. Before then, I would try to buy the big bubbles and I would always get a little bit frustrated if a kid knocked it over, spilled it, or even the little containers. If, you know, in 15 seconds, all we had was, you know, a big wet pile and, No more bubbles. And so I loved it when those little containers came out. And if you don't use those or haven't used those, do that. It makes it so much more fun. And I like it when I can let my little friend hold the container and not worry about that mess. And a lot of moms really appreciate that, too, in their... um, Living areas, when they a lot of parents will say, oh, I just save bubbles for outside or save bubbles for bath time. But if you get the no-spill container, it makes it a lot easier. Now, I don't really like those automatic bubble blowers. Sometimes I use them. I talked about them last year in a therapy tip of the week that I did at teachmetotalk.com. And, again, that therapy tip of the week is linked to this post. So you can go back and watch that if you haven't um, had an opportunity to do that. I like for kids to learn how to blow bubbles, and again, it's not the blowing that's important. You know, study after study after study will tell you that blowing bubbles really has very little to do with talking because that uh, action is controlled in a different, you know, it's a different area of neurological control. So we're not really emphasizing that children blow bubbles because of that at all. And if you're a mom, you might not have realized that. Most of the time, and, and we're not even really looking at the oral motor component, although a lot of therapists strongly believe in that treatment piece. And it is important for children who have low muscle tone to be able to do activities where we are supporting um strength and coordination, which, again, we know that's an important part of talking. But here, again, blowing in and of itself is not going to make a big, big difference when you have a child who's nonverbal versus verbal. But what we're really looking at here is teaching a child how to imitate and getting a child to do anything with his mouth, especially when there's been very little Volitional control, and by that I mean, you know, uh, doing something on purpose, doing something that he has chosen to do. And so, a lot of our little guys, everything they've done with their mouth has been reflexive. So they've they breathe and they swallow, they chew, they they um, cough, they sneeze. All those things kind of go on with all of that oral uh, motor musculature. But a lot of times our little guys don't realize that they can move their mouths on purpose, that they are in control. Have you, as a therapist, have you met a little friend who you, I say this all the time, you don't even think he knows he has a mouth? That happens a lot. And so getting any kind of oral or vocal imitation going in the beginning is an important step. So bubbles are a great way to do that. I like to work on to certainly requesting, and everybody knows to do that. I, in the post at teachmetotalk.com, dot com, the post that I mentioned before, I have a little list of target words with every toy that I mentioned there, and and also a description with how to use it. And again, we can certainly work on we think about requesting with bubbles, but lots of our little guys aren't ready to learn requesting at the very beginning those very beginning sessions we're establishing that social connection and I like bubbles because it is easier (laughs) to kind of get that joint attention going because you can hold the stick right in front of their little faces and then put your face right there too so eye contact is a little more likely when we do some positioning there so that we make ourselves a part of that activity again the imitation piece is huge there whether they begin by imitating pop a bubble whether that's slapping it on the floor or popping it with their index finger I like to teach my little friends to kick bubbles because that's a big gross motor body uh, movement that a lot of times kids really uh, need to start with that gross motor imitation before they refine it and they're able to do a fine motor um, do things that are more fine motor imitation, so that's a good thing to do. I like to work on exclamatory words with bubbles, words that you say with lots of emotion. So, certainly, pop. Um, pow is one that I use all the time, and I love it. If I can get a kid to say pop, I feel like I can immediately move to pow, and vice versa. You do have to change that vowel there, and so you are working on vowel differentiation. Uh, for you speech pathologists who are looking for a little more technical uh, terminology that's a great way to kind of move to that boom is another word that i might try again that's a great uh, target there because you have initial bilabials with any word that would begin with pb or m there so super super target word there Um, And because we're working on exclamatory words, those are more like play sounds. So for lots and lots of our little friends, that would be the place that we would start. Single words with requesting might just be too much. But if we can get those early verbal imitations in an exciting play routine that they already like and that you can make super fun. And, again, you're teaching all these things to their moms, too. Now, you may not be as technical. You may not be saying, well, Let's try to, you know, we know that he can say an initial bilabial because he says mama. So these are our target words with, we're going to target other initial bilabial words. You may not say that. You may just be saying to a mom, look, these are going to be some great words that we would try. Let me write these down for you so that when you play bubbles this week, these are the kinds of words that I want you to model or that I want you to, say for him so that over time he's hearing them, these become part of the routine and eventually our expectation of course is that he will imitate with um, the repeated exposure to that activity. Other words that I target there too, I love to do prepositions those location words with up, down in and out, off and on with bubbles you can do tons of stuff with that Certainly, we can target some verbs here with blow and with all gone and our descriptive words, of course, with wet and yucky. I also really like to do tons of pronouns here with more and mine and me. And, again, if you have a child who's having some uh, components that you really are paying attention to, your early targets, and you are trying to design your session to really account for a sound that he can already do. And like we've already talked about initial bilabials, moving to more and mine and me are, or I'm sorry, not more, but mine and me are great, great, great um, extensions of paying attention to that early speech goal And then you're getting a language component in there as well because you're introducing a new part of speech. So I just love doing that. Requesting again is fine. Some therapists really shy away from using those general words to request like more and like please. I still teach the sign for more first. I know a lot of people are opposed to that. I've got an article about that. If you want to read my reasons for still thinking more is fine for teaching toddlers, especially those first few sessions, just so you can get some success and a way for them to request. But take a look at that article. It's it's called 10 Reasons I Still Teach the Sign for More First. If... A parent needs of an introduction to sign language. There's also a link on this article and some information about using signs with toddlers, why that's a good idea. And certainly um, as a speech language pathologist or another early interventionist, that's something you're familiar with. And bubbles are a great, again, way to introduce those signs and, and really have an opportunity to talk with parents about how successful they can be and facilitating those early requests and just that, that, reciprocity piece where you're really having a child stay with you and want to be with you and take some turns and really learn that whole back and forth piece so that's another reason i love 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 bubbles second toy the flat ball if you do not own a flat ball you need to get one immediately they are such a fun toy now a flat ball is like it's always over if you're buying it in a store it's always over kind of near the nerf toys but let me tell you about this cool ball you can push it flat and so it's got a little round part on the top and then some dividers there but you push it and it stays flat for um a variable amount of time, which is kind of cool because the toddler really doesn't know when it might pop back to its ball shape. So tons of fun. The directions on the package talk about throwing that ball. I cannot imagine doing that with a toddler. <laughs> I always just use it on the floor Uh, and push it flat, and then we wait for it to pop open. I do a cute little verbal routine with this. And if you have watched uh, my therapy tip of the week about balls, you've seen that, but I do some patting on my legs while we push, you know, we'll say ball, and then we'll push the top of the ball down, and then we'll pat our legs and say, wait, 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 wait. And then when the ball pops, we scream and say, ah, pop. So really fun, repetitive routine, and we all – know why verbal routines work because the child begins to anticipate what the words will be and before you know it he just pops out one of those words especially at the end lots of times I'll have a child begin to scream or vocalize with that ah at the end and some parents might not recognize that that's progress with their child but anytime a child can imitate what we've done vocally or verbally however you want to think about that that's progress and so we take something really really simple like a screen and put it in a routine and when he learns that he can do that and learns that that's the thing that comes next and he learns to use his little voice purposefully that's huge for so many of our little clients so you'll have to explain that to moms and really talk about why that's important but this is a super super toy it's about 10 bucks so you can get a lot of Repetitions there and a lot of fun for about $10 with that flat ball. Um, There is a therapy tip of the week on that post too, so that you can see how I use that toy and and some other ideas and see a demonstration of that as well. But verbal routines work so, so well. And so anytime we can take a toy like um, the flat ball or other toys that we're going to talk about and have a consistent way to play so that we're saying the same thing time after time after time. And, again, the beauty of that is that the child learns it. And that's an important, you know, beyond the expressive piece or before the expressive piece when they start to pop out that little word, just that they remember that, that they recognize that. So that's a cognitive skill that we're teaching where they're really working on that memory, first of all, that recognition and then anticipation, And then, you know, even the gestural imitation part where they start to pat their little legs during the wait, 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 wait part. That's huge for so many of our little clients, especially at the very beginning of therapy. So that's a super toy. Um, You can teach so many verbs with this toy, too. Certainly push and pop are great targets. We talked uh, with Bubbles about using pronouns, the mine and the me and my. I certainly do that with this kind of toy where we talk about whose turn it is. It's a valuable toy for beginning turn-taking with children. You know our little guys who get so mad when – someone else wants to share an experience with them, whether it be a peer or a sibling. You can't really teach that turn-taking piece, or as parents like to call it, sharing. You can't really teach that with another child. Kids just get too mad. So at the beginning, we should be always doing that with a caring, loving adult (laughs) who can compensate for any problem that a child would have. And, you know, when you're taking your turn with a flat ball, your turn is I mean, it's built into the game. All you would do is reach over and you push the ball down. That's the extent of your turn. And so most of our little friends can tolerate that. They're not going to get too mad at you for that. So that's certainly a way that I use that toy, those early turn-taking, so that a child really learns again, that back and forth piece. And so many parents kind of get caught up in thinking, oh, that's in teaching sharing. And that sharing means that I'm going to take five minutes with this toy and then it will be his turn for five minutes. And then he has to give it back to me for five minutes. That is way too long for a toddler. And sharing is a universal issue for all toddlers. Certainly you've seen that when you've gone into daycares. Nobody likes to share when they're two. That's just part of the developmental progression. They're learning about themselves and they're learning that they're independent and that they can control their worlds and so no wonder they don't want to give up their prize toy for someone else. We have to totally get that and we have to talk to parents about that and talk about how, again, this is a hierarchy. This is something children learn how to do over time and we don't start with taking away everything they like and telling them they better darn well deal with it. That's too much. And so we have to start, especially with our children who have so many issues with this, with these little, tiny turns. And a ball or toy like a flat ball certainly can facilitate that kind of early beginnings of letting someone else take a turn. The third toy I have on my list is something that I use all the time. I use it in early sessions, but I also really use it in assessments, and it's a wind-up toy. You can learn so much information from a Uh, about a toddler from five minutes with a wind-up toy. So let's just kind of talk about that. We can first look at a toddler's joint attention, meaning when you have the frog that jumps or the chicken that walks or the bunny that, you know, hops or whatever whatever your little wind-up toy is, does the child include you in that activity? Does he include his mom in that activity? And what do I mean by that? That's that triad of attention where he's looking at you, looking at the toy, looking back at you, looking at his mom. Again, including somebody else in there. So many times, even therapists will miss this. They'll say, you know, he's got good attention. And so they'll kind of, when the, when a child doesn't really balk that they are playing with the child, that the adult is doing all of the work there, they'll kind of say, well, he's got joint attention because, you know, he lets me play with him. On further inspection of that, you realize the child never, ever, ever looks at the adult or he doesn't initiate that, including the other person. Guys, that's not joint attention. That's not joint attention at all. He may tolerate you being there. He may be fine with you saying, doc the duck the duck's going to you know walk or what? again whatever your wind-up toy does but if he's not looking at you and again with wind-up toys toddlers can't operate these toys by themselves so he needs usually most of the time for 99.9 percent of toddlers he needs somebody else to activate the toy so he should be picking up that toy and giving it to you and looking at you like hey i can't do it i need some help And even nonverbal kids should be using their facial expressions and their eye contact. And again, that gesture, that giving you the toy, even before you ask for it. Now, if you notice that your little friend isn't initiating that, certainly we stick out our hands and say, give it to me. I will help you. But a child really by 12 months should be regularly using joint attention and regularly initiating those kinds of early ways to ask for assistance, you know, and again, this is beyond crying. This isn't just that he's frustrated because the toy won't go again and that he, you know, lunges it across the room and then cries. There's got to be that extra step where he's looked at you or given it to you or at the very least responded when you've said, hey, give it to me. I'll help you. And puts it in your hand there you know that's an important thing that we need to know if children are developmentally at that point yet whether they're doing that or not uh, and certainly there's a the receptive language component as you're saying to him without your gesture there give it to me let me help you give me the duck whatever you're saying there if he's not understanding and following that simple command it's a problem <laughs> if he's over 12 to 15 months and doesn't understand that He should really be doing that. That's a basic, early, simple command that a child should be following. So certainly you're going to get some information about that. For a child who doesn't try to turn the knob, if if he sees you wind up a toy, you demonstrate that a couple of times and the child doesn't even try to do that himself or he's looking at it and he doesn't seem to understand what makes that work, I start to kind of wonder about their problem solving. You know, how were they able to figure things out? That's an important cognitive skill. So, so many things we can learn about a toddler just in that few minutes that we would expose him to a wind-up toy. So, great information there. I own probably 20 different wind-up toys. I've just bought some other cute ones. Uh, Toys R Us has some good ones right now. I bought a monkey that has symbols. so cute that claps the symbols together. I just love it. Um, And so you should own several of those and use them in your early sessions. And in your assessment so that you can figure those things out uh, about your little friend. And again, a simple, simple way to do that. Let's move along. I didn't think this uh, (laughs) show was going to take this long. I thought this would be easy to get done in an hour. So we're only on number four. My fourth kind of toy that I use in early sessions with toddlers and speech therapy would be a shape sorter. Now, as a rule, I do not like shape sorters because of the, Skills that lots of us have kind of fallen into delineating to a shape sorter, meaning that a parent automatically is going to try to teach the shape, circle, square, triangle, or the color. And for so many of our little guys, we need to focus on more functional vocabulary. Most of our guys, nearly all of our guys on our caseload, we need to start with those words that those kids need to use every single day. So when I use shape sorters, well, I only have one shapes order that I like, and it's the one that I've listed here on um, the list. It's by, mine is by parents, but now that, brand it used to be the target brand of toys but now that's changed sometimes it's the tot i think that's how you say it b-a-t-t-a-t that that uh, toy manufacturer or the uh, b the initial b the letter b period wacky i think has this kind of toy too Uh, but it's a cool shape sorter because it makes noise there are shapes, of course, hence the name, shape sorter. So there is the matching component there. But the coolest thing about this toy is that it makes a really weird sound like Ooh, when the shape goes into the corresponding hole. I like it, too, because the top of the shape has a little character on it. Mine mine is older, so I have animals on mine. And so instead of saying and teaching circle, Square, triangle, Um, I think the other one is a rectangle, I can't remember, uh, or star, something like that. Instead of teaching that shape word, I talk about the animal sound uh, or the animal, and so that's why I really, really, really like it. And again, it's such an attention getter, and I'm still able to see a child's ability to match. I'm still able to look at that problem-solving piece with can he figure out that the circle goes in the circle, and if he puts it in the square, does he try to get it in the square for three minutes and get mad and not understand that he can just scoot it over one little space and that it will fit? And again, you can get some great information to determine what a child's cognition, how his cognitive skills are developing, how his problem skills, problem-solving skills are developing, his frustration tolerance, that's a huge thing for so many of our little friends. You can also see what they do if you cover up some of the shapes that or all of the ones except for maybe the the shape that the it should really fit in, and maybe one more. Or, if when you have a kid that can't do that, you can cover up all the other options and see is he going to go to the one that's open? How well will he do that? How well can he get it in there? And certainly we can look at a child's fine motor skills like that as well. So so many things that we can figure out about a child with a toy like that. But, again, it's not as boring as that traditional shape sorter. So I love, love, love that toy. You certainly can work on receptive language with it, especially if you have a version where the animals are really um, obvious. I think some of the newer ones, they're, the animal shapes aren't as – Prominent or pronounced as with the older versions, but you'll just have to kind of look at it. But again, the main value with this toy is that it will keep a kid's attention because of that cool sound that it makes. So it's one that I really, really like. And you can see that toy. There's a therapy tip of the week on this post that's. um, an early one like 2012 and I did uh, Therapy Tip of the Week on cause and effect toys and so you can see an example of that toy there and then hear me talk about that as well. The next toy is one of my standards and man do I rarely do a session without this toy at the beginning. It has universal appeal. It's the ball and hammer toy and I'm probably on my sixth or seventh one (laughs) because I wear them out or when it looks like it's Uh, just loved, and I don't really, I want a newer version, I tend to give this toy away. If a kid really loves it, and I know that the family doesn't have a lot of resources, or mom says, gosh, I've been looking for this, and I haven't been able to find it, I say, here, keep mine, you can have it. So that's why I've gone through so many of these toys. I love the ball and hammer toy, because there's so much you can teach with it. Of course, we're looking at requesting, you're looking at teaching cause and effect, all of those early Um, cognitive milestones that we're looking for. But if you have a kid who, again, likes balls, and that's such a a popular toy for toddlers, this is such a nice way to expand that kind of play. I love looking at a toddler's ability to use tools here. And if you're a mom listening, you may think, gosh, that's weird. Why Why is she concerned that he can use a hammer like a construction tool? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about using an object for another purpose. So here you're having the hammer, it's what activates the ball. It's what gets the ball in the hole and the child watches it go down with the clear front and then eventually come out the hole and then you pick it up and you do it again. There're so many of our little guys who don't understand how to use the hammer. And so that could be a motor planning issue, it could be a cognitive issue. You know, children start to really use tools, meaning eat with utensils, use a toothbrush to brush their teeth, brush their hair with a hairbrush, that usually starts coming on in, sometimes as young as about 12 months, but 15 to 18 months. If we don't see a child doing that by 18 months, that's an issue that we need to think about and that we need to explore. And certainly a lot of our little guys who are two and a half and still not doing any self-feeding or trying to do anything with utensils, they're still just doing a ton of finger feeding. That is developmentally appropriate. You know, toddlers eat with their hands for a long time. And, you know, we as adults, we have foods that are completely fine to eat with fingers, but we really want, like french fries, my favorite, but we really want our, our friends at 18 months, 24 months, 30 months to really start to use utensils and to know how to use a fork and a spoon. So this is a a precursor to that so that they're really learning how they can use toys together. And that's, that's a big problem for so many of our little clients in early intervention. So I love the ball and hammer toy because we can find so much information out uh, about a child with that, and we have to we have to see how responsive they are to our teaching with that. Lots of our our little clients have never seen this kind of toy, or maybe they have a version of it at home. But mom says, "Gosh, she never uses the hammer." Or I took the hammer away. I thought he was going to hit his brother with it. He tried to hit the baby with it. Or, or the older child just loves to hit him with it. If you have a child who, after you show him a few times, isn't able to really pick that up, and again, if he's two, two and a half, but he's not able to understand how to use the hammer, he always defaults to using his hands. That's a problem. That's a red flag. And again, you can't determine what the problem is unless you are looking at the child, but it certainly is something that you should be exploring and you should be thinking about and you should say, is this an imitation problem? Is this a fine motor problem? Is this a cognitive problem? Sometimes it's a combination of all those things. So it certainly is a toy that you can, it's fun and you'll be able to use it to engage a child and tons of kids like it. I mean, I have had to fight big brothers and sisters off this toy because it's, Uh, Even so, you know, a nine-year-old would want to do it. But again, you can get so much information about where a kid is developmentally uh, by looking at how he uses this kind of toy. And it's so popular with parents. They always want to know where to get it and how to find it if they've not seen that kind of thing before. And the word list, of course, you're going to work on ball and hammer. But you can do a lot with prepositions here. And again, the list that's developmentally appropriate for Two-year-olds up, down, in, out, off, on, here, and there. You can teach every one of those prepositions with this toy. I like to do um, some verbal routines with this. I grab the ball and say, I got it, I got it. And that's a cute kind of holistic phrase that lots of our little friends, if they're in between, um, kind of at that 35 to 50 word vocabulary benchmark and they haven't made that leap to phrases yet that certainly is a a, this is a toy that i'll use and an activity that i'll use because it's high emotion high energy and a lot of times i can facilitate that imitation of i got it or got it or something that sort of sounds like they're moving toward a phrase so certainly a great way to use that toy uh, for kids who are at that developmental level. The other thing too, just with the whole um, joint attention piece and the reciprocity, and even following directions with this toy. With, um, you know, I've done some other things where I've said, oh, you know, put the ball in the door, or. Certainly, like we talked about before, helping a kid learn prepositions and just following those directions. Hit it with the hammer, push it in, those kinds of things, following those early simple receptive language commands. You can do a ton of stuff with um, the ball and hammer toy. Now, the next toy is a newer toy. It's called Frog in a Box. And I learned about this toy on a blog several years ago, probably, I guess it was about 2012. So it is kind of a relatively new toy, But this therapist sent me a link and said, hey, I read about you and your website on this other person's blog, and she recommended your Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual on her blog, and I wondered, you know, she was just kind of asking me questions about that, but she she left a link, and so, or enough information for me to find the blog and search it. So I found it on her blog. She's actually the... Blogger has actually been a guest on the show before. She's real fun, um, but it was it's, it's super frog in a box, and I love it because this is a kind of a round toy, a cylinder there, and there's a frog inside. And guys, you open the top, and the frog jumps out. And it's not like a Jack in the Box; it's not attached. The frog actually leaves the little. Again, we're saying a box, but it's round. He leaves his his container. <laughs> Jumps and toddlers think that it's hysterical, and it is sort of like a jack in the box because you are, you know, waiting for the toy to pop out like it would be. So, if you don't have this toy and families don't have it, they probably do have a jack in the box, so you or may, Uh, so you can certainly use some of these same kinds of ideas if they don't have it. But it is worth your um, investment if you are looking to. Add some new things to your toy inventory. I just love it. I don't, I always use the frog, but I've also gotten other tiny stuffed animals or those little plush toys to use with it. And if a child has a favorite character and has a little version of that, I almost always try to incorporate it with this toy. And sometimes I'll do it like it's a surprise. So I won't have told him. Uh, I had a little guy who liked SpongeBob. And so I didn't make a big deal about taking his Spongebob and putting it in there, but I got it from his grandmother and then stuck it in there. And that was a big surprise when the Spongebob popped out of that toy. So you can do some fun little. Certainly it is a way that you can incorporate some of what a family already has, even if you're just taking the that in as your own toy. I love to teach calling with this toy. And by calling I mean that a child is learning to use his voice to get attention and this is so important for toddlers. How many times do we say to a mom, How does he get your attention? What does he do if he's in the other room and he really wants you? And a lot of times moms will say, Well, nothing or he cries. And again, calling is a skill. It's a it's a pragmatic a function that we want a child to be able to do. So I love this toy for that purpose and whatever we're using. If we use the frog, you know, I'm teaching froggy, froggy, where are you? So it's a cute little way to use a holistic phrase too. And a lot of our little friends will start to say, you know, eh, uh-oh, even if they're not really fully articulating that whole sentence yet, that's okay. We know they're moving to that. The trick here to teach calling, I have really found use a lot of gestures. So put your hands up on either side of your mouth. Really lean forward as you're saying that. Use your facial expressions so that a kid really, again, thinks that that is so fun. And even if he's not verbalizing, not really calling with his voice if you start to see that he's leaning forward that he's putting his hands by his mouth a lot of times you'll see that you'll see them start to imitate that before they can even produce the word and that's fantastic and you want to point that out to mom and say okay he's not saying dog or duck or whatever you've hidden in there he's not able to do that but mom look at him he's trying he's Moving toward that, look at how he's leaning his little body just like I did. Look at him putting his hands by his mouth. He's learned that, and that's a huge leap for some of our little friends. It's a lot of progress. So I love, love, love that toy, Um, and that's one, one success that I nearly always can get if a kid is developmentally ready. Uh, to be able to learn to call. And then, of course, we're going to transfer that skill. Then we're going to work on calling mom from the other room. We're going to work on calling other toys. We're going to work on calling, you know, when the car rolls under the couch, we're going to call the car. Or I'm going to hide, you know, another toy behind my back and act like I don't know where it is. I'm going to call that toy too. So there's so many things you can do just with the introduction of the skill in this kind of activity. So be sure you're talking with moms about that too. Don't let them just stop with, you know, calling the frog with your particular toy. Really talk to moms about why we teach that and give them very concrete, specific examples of how they can teach it with their own toys or better yet, with people. So help moms and dads learn how to do that. The next toy is the spiral racetrack by Fisher Price. Now, I got mine a long time ago, and this is a toy too that I've bought several versions of. I cannot believe that they don't have a cheaper version of this right now. I'm hoping that Fisher Price will bring it back. They always kind of cycle through these ideas. The last big version of this spiral racetrack was when the movie Cars came out, and so I think the link that's included in the post for this one is a real pricey version of this toy, because the movie Cars, that. You know, those have all become collector's items now. You know, who knew, right? Uh, But I love this toy because it's a really simple cause and effect toy, a lot of bang for your buck here, with that a kid will do it over and over and over again. And it's a little racetrack with two cars at the top. You push the lever and then they go down. Now, a lot of times we'll see... (laughs) Interesting things happen with this. And I'll, as I'll say, you know, if a kid gets stuck on cause. By that I mean that he perseveratively pushes the lever and he does not notice that the cars are going down. And you can get a lot of information about a kid's play skills or about his, how often he seems to engage in self-stimulatory behaviors <laughs> with using a toy like this and you can point that kind of thing out to mom a mom might say oh gosh he really likes the that's all he wants to do and you have to gently move the conversation towards well he kind of gets stuck on pushing other buttons too mom and that's not really about this let's talk about what this means and really kind of approach that very um, tentatively with some parents because they're not quite ready to hear it but it certainly is a way that I have found that I'm able to start to have those initial conversations about, you know, this is something he does repetitively. This is what we call a stereotyped behavior, meaning that, you know, he does it over and over and over and over. And I also see it when he plays with this toy. And then we can start to have those conversations that are really difficult for us to be able to kind of get our foot in the door and discuss. You know, a mom will sometimes will just come out and say, He doesn't know how to play with toys, and when he does play with toys, he seems to want to do All he wants to do is push the buttons. You know, that gives you your way in to talk about it, but some moms really need you to go there. They don't really understand what's happening. They are not seeing what you're seeing. They just think, well, he doesn't know how to play, or, again, he likes the buttons, or, you know, whatever their reason has become that the child uses some self-stimulatory behavior so it's a way to talk about it sometimes it's that our little friends cognitively don't understand that there's a second part to that and again that it may be kind of a multifactorial thing going on with the kid there may be it may be a cognitive delay plus you know he's got red flags for autism so there is some uh stimming going on so there's lots to talk about here and again that's why i like this list of toys <laughs> because not only will Of course, they're fun, and we want kids to play with us and to advance their play skills and certainly to advance their communication skills, you know, across the gamut, looking beginning with their social interaction and moving to the cognitive piece and receptive language, and then finally that expressive language piece but there's so much that we information we can gather from having a broad range of toys that we introduce at the beginning and toys that are fun for nearly every kid but toys that let us really tease out these developmental problems or red flags right from the beginning so that we know what we're dealing with. And so uh, if you will pay attention to the toys that you're using too, in addition to being fun and in addition to doing what a child likes, you do want to be sure that you're including things that will give you a whole um, variety of a child's skills so that you're able to look at, again, how he's developing across the board and be able to make some – Gather some opinions and have some impressions, some clinical impressions at the beginning. And again, not just about what he's saying. You're going to look at this whole kid, look at all those factors that have to come in before he starts to talk. And this will give you nice ways to approach these, or more natural ways, excuse me, to approach these kinds of conversations with parents as you're playing together with this toy. And you can say, this is what I notice and this is what I'm seeing. And, again, it's not quite as in-your-face with a mom or a dad as when you're sitting across from them and giving assessment results. It's more natural and it's more conversational. And that makes it easier for you as a therapist to talk about those things too. All right, toy number eight. Oh, my goodness, I love these blocks, these DiGECO, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, blocks. I did a therapy tip a week ago. Uh, about it last summer and so you a pretty current one so you can see um, the toys there but it's a really cute set of blocks the artwork is just darling and the best feature is that each block has a round opening and I call that the door and the set comes with little small plastic animals now I've bought a couple of sets so the set that you see on the therapy tip of the week probably is a combination of a couple of different sets so be sure that when you're purchasing that that you realize that you're not going to get 32 blocks it's probably just a set of 12 at the beginning and maybe four animals versus the six or eight that you might see in the therapy tip of the week but I love this set of blocks. And again, you can certainly use these ideas with any set of blocks that a family would already have. But if you are looking for a new toy to freshen up, Your stock or your standard things that you use, this would be something that would be worth your money. And so take a look at the ideas with blocks that are in the post. Certainly we know that every, well, let me just say this, no toddler can resist knocking down a stacked set of blocks. I mean, you will hardly find a kid who doesn't think that is the most thing he has ever done in his whole life. And I love it, too, because even our little friends with significant motor delays and motor challenges can we can almost always teach them how to do that and sometimes that will irritate a mom because she's thinking it's all about the stacking and that's not what i want them to do at all i'm going to get to the fun part i don't care if i have to stack it as long as he's watching me and playing with me and if he tries to stack one or two that's great but i love the falling down part because again they they think that's so funny. They've made that happen. So you're teaching cause and effect. They want to do it again. So they're getting in there. Now, it is a little bit irritating when you've just built, uh, you know, you've just been able to stack two blocks and they're ready to knock it down again. But don't let yourself get too irritated with that. <laughs> and help moms kind of get over that. Say, it's okay if he can't wait till we get all seven or eight blocks stacked. You know, this is part of, you know, that frustration tolerance or that um, delayed gratification, we were kind of teaching them to wait a little bit. So that's certainly a little lesson you can learn. I have some cute verbal routines that I do with this particular set of blocks, certainly pretending that we're putting the animals in the houses. I like to make the animals climb up and say, up, 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 and then put them in and do a little knocking on the door routine or making the animals go to sleep. And we're playing the night-night game. That's a really fun um, game that you can do, a verbal routine. You can make the night-night routine as complicated or as simple as you want. For some kids, I'm just saying, ooh, night-night, shh, and then one, two, three, wake up. And some kids, we're doing the whole, you know, we make the animal go to sleep, we pat the animal on the back, we say shh, we do snoring. You know, so we're bringing in lots of exclamatory words, a really simple kind of vocal play for them to imitate, and then the counting with the verbal routine, and then the big wake up. Uh, so, So tons of opportunities there to include social games that you might have used in another context. You might have just started playing that with the kid and you want to expand that social routine a little bit and expand his play routines a little bit. So you use a social game in the context of playing with a different kind of toy. I do that all the time. And for our kids who don't like toys, our kids that have finally learned how to play with you and include you but they're they're just not that into toys yet. That's what you do. You teach you, you take a game that they already like and you, you make it part of play with, with an object, with a toy. So that's certainly something you can do with that too. I like the set of blocks and with um the graduated sets of blocks that you can get or buckets, you can teach size, so big and little. You can do a lot with that one um, kind of concept as well, too. Let's move on to talk about the last two really quickly. If you are an exerciser and you're at the end of your hour, we have gone over, but that's okay. We're going <laughs> to hang in here for this last few minutes and get this done. Baby dolls and accessories, I think dolls are the best and easiest Way to see if a kid is beginning to understand pretending. Sometimes dads get a little bit freaked out about dolls, and you that's okay. You can use the same kind of early pretending with anything a kid likes. So I've done of stuff with Thomas, with our little friends who are Thomas obsessed, or any little animal, stuffed animal, or, or whatever they have, their little lovey kind of uh, attachment. Object that they have, you can certainly do that uh with your baby doll, you're gonna need a little set of accessories, and with this earliest phase with these first few sessions, I try to just usually do it with a doll, a cup or a bottle, a spoon or two, a bowl. I might add a hat, a baby wipe, and a brush. I think that those that's for some kids that's gonna be too much. But for lots of our little friends, they can tolerate that many objects within one play routine. If a family, if I'm sitting there and we're playing with a doll and they don't seem to have a lot of accessories, I talk to mom about let's go raid the kitchen. Let's go get your own child's hairbrush or your hairbrush. You know, we can pull things from all over the house to be able to make a little play set. And so let's talk about these early pretend skills. Lots of our little guys are not going to be able to do things with the doll right away. They need to start with using those items, the brush, the spoon, the cup, the baby bike, the hat. They need to start with doing that on themselves. And that's okay. Sometimes we work too hard to try to get a kid to move on and use it on the doll. When developmentally, he really should be using that object on himself first. And then beyond that, he can use that object on you or on his mom. You know, how many times have you... (laughs) had a little friend who you know he's drinking his own sippy cup and then he reaches over to you to try to make you drink it too that's reciprocity that's turn-taking we love that and he may not be able to do it with the doll yet but you know he's moving in the right direction when he can first use the object on himself then he can use it on a real life person mom you dad a sibling and then then that's when he can move to using it with Another toy, so combining those toys um together for some of our little guys, they can't combine toys yet, so um again, they may not even be to the point that they could use those other objects functionally. You may have to back up and kind of work with the doll, so talk about or and model kissing the baby or patting the baby or hugging the baby or hiding the baby. Um, with the doll. So sometimes you're going to have to kind of start there. Um, you can teach when a kid, you know, receptively, you can teach following directions, understanding new object names. Oh, my gosh, just tons and tons and tons of receptive goals. And certainly with Expressive, you can teach about anything that you would want to teach a toddler using a baby doll and accessories. I have a series of therapy tips of the week. And, again, these were early ones back in 2012 where we kind of moved through three levels of pretend play. So feel free to take a look at those and get some new ideas um, maybe for bumping up a child's pretend play skills, maybe you have a kid that feels kind of stuck with pretend play and you're not really sure where to go. You think, well, he knows how to feed the baby and he can give her you know he can give her a drink and he can put the hat on, but gosh we don't I don't really know what we else we can do. He's not really ready to you know too big of a leap that there are lots of little pretend kind of things that can come in between early functional use with objects and you know a big play scenario like going on a doctor visit or something like that so take a look at those um, therapy tips of the week and look at that progression that you can use and get some new ideas there last toy with my top 10 list would be easy wooden puzzles (coughs) excuse me i think every speech pathologist owns puzzles and certainly parents do too I love them because they're cheap and, again, lots and lots and lots of families that they're readily available. When I'm looking at a family's puzzles, I really talk to parents about finding puzzles and using puzzles that have functional vocabulary or vocabulary beyond those academic skills, so beyond colors, shapes, numbers, and letters. If a kid has a quirk or a fascination with those early letters, you know, those kinds of – you know what I'm talking about, colors, letters, shapes, and numbers – we can use it still, but I'm not going to teach it. I'm not teaching colors per se or shapes or letters or numbers when a kid doesn't have a functional vocabulary. That's that's a waste of my energy. I want to give him a way to, I want to teach him words he needs to know and, and words. He can use all day, every day. And as I like to tell parents, you know, how many times a day should he say square? You know, only when you're saying, what shape is this? You know, he's not really going to need to come up to you and ask for a square. So that's not functional. So that's how you explain that to a parent. So look, kind of look at that and talk with parents if they're purchasing toys, too, about if they like puzzles and if a child likes puzzles, about what kinds of of topics they should be looking for, what kinds of puzzles are best for facilitating early language, and don't make them feel penalized you know, if they have a lot of toys or puzzles or books that emphasize those early academic things. And I like to tell parents, we're going to get there. We just don't want to do that yet. Let's teach him some other more functional words. On the other hand, there are some of our little friends, especially our little guys, who have red flags for autism, who seem to have taught themselves these kinds of concepts, the shapes, colors, letters, and numbers. And with those kids, you may have to use those concepts as your early way in. You may have to use those as a way to establish a relationship with a child, again, to kind of meet him where he is. But you're not teaching him new things about those. He already knows those. He's taught himself because that's what he likes. That's what he's into. So for those kids... You might use it. And, again, I always think about language processing and following directions. So if a kid lo- has an ABC puzzle and he loves it and he can put it together with that kind of kid, I'm not really saying, what letter is this? I'm doing the receptive stuff and the processing stuff where I'm saying, you know, find a red R or show me a G. Or if we're working on two-step commands, you know, let's find a B and a Q. And giving him that and making processing And following directions part of the activity because those kinds of children most often have difficulties with that receptive piece or that comprehension or processing, whatever you want to call it. So that's how I would use those um, natural interests, those little activity preferences when it's not something that I would have chosen for the child, but it's all he likes to do. That's kind of how you work your way in there with those. You think about, though, how to teach language and still work on the goals that you need to work on, even if it's not your favorite material. All right, other things that we can do with puzzles. Of course, we can, you know, we can do the expressive thing. But, again, I really want you to think about what you can do with children before expressive language would be a realistic goal. So certainly teaching a child to um, understand more nouns so that you're saying, you know, where's the boat? where's the car show me the choo-choo and you're doing that you certainly can work on building attention with puzzles if you have a kid though that only that it's a nine piece puzzle and he will only do two please don't make the mistake of saying you have to do all nine pieces before we get up you know that's so unrealistic for so many of our little guys but they'll do two pieces this week and the next week you make it super fun and you again Let them know that they're kind of in charge a little bit, but you push them and you say, you know, let's do one more. Let's do one more. Come on, one more, one more. And that week you get them to do three pieces. And the next week it might be four pieces. Or mom says to you, hey, I tried that trick, that one more trick. And, you know, he didn't get all nine of them in, but he did four before he left me or he did six. Can you believe that? And for some of our little guys who are so high energy and so busy and so dysregulated, you know, for them to be able to do four pieces of a puzzle before they have to get up and move is a pretty big deal. So we need to recognize those successes and and build those things in gradually. I love um, working on higher level language skills with, you know, for toddlers with with, uh, puzzles too, because you certainly can teach object functions or a version of that, even with something like a farm animal puzzle, you'll be able to say, you know, which one says oink, 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 which one says whoop, woof woof. And again, a lot of kids may be able to tell you the animal sound, but when you reverse that question and you ask them kind of the 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 other side of that and you make it a receptive goal versus an expressive goal they can't really do it they don't really understand it so that's a great thing to work on there's a clip from uh, one of my dvds i think it's teach me to listen and obey too that on um, in the post for uh, this list of toys and you can check out how I blend all these goals together, how I'm working on receptive and expressive language with a little girl, a little friend of mine in this clip. And you can see how it's all kind of uh, put together. It's not We're not just working on one goal or one area. And I think that's important for us to be able to think about. And that, that's what real life therapy looks like isn't it, where we're looking at all different kinds of things with a child, and I like being able to incorporate all those different things. Um, There's also a Therapy Tip of the Week video in that post with additional ideas for puzzles. Okay, we got through that whole list of 10 toys in one show, so I'm so happy that um, we got through that. I'd love to hear your feedback, so if you want to um, let me know what you think about those, I'd love to hear it. Uh, You can email me, laura at teachmetotalk.com, or leave me a comment on the post. All right. Thanks so much. I've enjoyed the show.